Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to episode number 26 of the Young Contemptibles podcast. And uh, the release date, 28th of March for this episode, 2022, just happens to coincide with the 80th anniversary of what has been dubbed the greatest raid of all. That is, of course, Operation Chariot. Now, I'm joined with Pete Neal, but we also have a very special guest, uh, Jake Lovick, who is a fellow living historian. Um, I would say we met him on the internet, but that's that's kind of risque these days. You don't quite know what you're going to expect, but I can confirm he is an absolute gentleman and a scholar, and he joins us on this episode. So, Jake, we always ask everyone the same question if they're a living historian or they get into reenactments and so forth. What is, what's your background in uh, living history, and what sort of was the, the hook that got you interested in uh, in World War One in particular? Hi, Steve. Hi, Pete. Thanks for having me on. Um, my interest in living history sort of started last September. Uh, I've been thinking about joining living history for years. Um, and I joined a Great War living history group, as I've always had a fascination with the Great War. And really, for me, the biggest driver in that was because there's not only so much that you can learn um, about the Great War, but there, there are so many myths out there and fallacies surrounding it that it was actually quite um interesting to get into that and uh learn that actually it's quite the opposite you know the idea that uh tommy's spent the entire war in a trench up to the rise in mud is so wrong and for me living history has been a way to sort of delve into it immerse myself around it and i suppose to a certain extent sort of spread the word out there that it's it's far from that and um yeah so that's that's my interest in the great war really yeah, and you're absolutely right, Jake. There is a lot of myths to the First World War, especially with popular culture where everyone thinks that, you know, like you said, they just sat in a trench for four years um, is uh, a complete utter misconception because there was a lot going on during that time period. But so what we're here to talk about today is, uh, is obviously uh, Operation Chariot. So what has uh, spurred your interest in Operation Chariot? Do you know what? I actually think there's something really unique about this operation. Um, while its primary objective, when you think about it, was quite important, I think it was a bit of a propaganda stunt for the British. You know, things so far for Britain hadn't been easy. And while 1941 saw the entrance of the United States into the war, the impact of that was still yet to be felt. And... Um, you know, Singapore had been lost only a month before to the Japanese and the dicey situation in North Africa. So the idea of sending a somewhat motley force of ships and nearly 300 commandos into what was basically an impregnable place is when you think about it, completely absurd. And it was a great show of ingenuity, planning and above all courage. The number of cases of men who enacted exemplary feats of bravery are incredible and you know 
no less than five Victoria Crosses were awarded during that action. And that is, for me, what makes Operation Chariot so interesting. Couldn't agree more with that. Operation Chariot is one of the first uh, commando operations that I was aware of, um, mainly because my, my dad was reading a book, which I actually have um, next to me, not the very same book, um, but a book that I remember seeing him reading when I was a youngster. And I always said to him, what's that all about? And he said, well, you know, it's it's about, um, about a battle in the war. I was only a youngster at the time. And as I've grown up, become to realize what Operation Chariot is all about. And it, it is unique. You're absolutely right in saying that it's, it's it's amazing. It hasn't actually been made into some form of feature film yet. Who knows what the future may uh, hold in the world of living history? You, can, you never know. Never say never. But the raid itself, it, it was conceived um, in essence in, in January 1942, and it was planned for the end of March to, to sort of tie in with the, um, the sort of spring tides. Um, but the, the actual raid itself, it's very important to remember, it wasn't just... It was a, well, it was a very strategic objective. Uh, Suntas there. This is where uh, the, the guys went in on uh, Operation Chariot. So you've got the Loire uh, estuary that comes down and you have uh, the port of Saint-Nazaire. Now, Saint-Nazaire is a port like uh, no other in Europe, let alone the world. It had the uh, largest dry dock and the key strategic objective with this particular um, dock was that the Bismarck had been sank by this point um, it had taken down a number of Allied ships uh, sort of with it in the run-up to its uh, sort of uh, destruction. But Germany had a bigger and far superior battleship up its sleeve, which was ready to rock and roll. And that was the that was a Trippets. And the fear was uh, that the Germans would be able to put the Trippets into action in the Atlantic, and it would well have decimated Allied shipping. So I thought, well, how can we deny um, the, the Trippets getting into the Atlantic? And they... They keep, the, the key position that they pinpointed was the port of Saint-Nazaire. So they thought, well, how, how can we target this? Because we don't have uh, anything bomb-related that could destroy uh, the docks. We, we've kind of tried that and nothing's happened. So what are we going to have to do? And it very quickly became apparent that they were going to put some boots on the ground uh, into actually into Saint-Nazaire. And a lot of planning went on. So Mountbatten came in and he started formulating the plan. And... Um, it all started coming together, and it's such a amazing story. Um, the whole of like the, the actual operation, how it came about, that forty five minutes on a podcast, to be honest, isn't going to do it justice. You're going to have to pick the book up, but we'll put it into a very short synopsis so you you folks at home can get a flavour of it all. But essentially, this is where the the commandos really earned their spurs uh, going in, and what what the objective was was to destroy the the big dock gates that go into the dry dock to deny the trippets from being able to dock and be repaired and refueled and and rearmed, and it wouldn't have been able to then, uh, as we well know, wreak havoc in the Atlantic. Interestingly, um, there were no less than twenty four objectives overall as part of the operation. However. The most important objective, as Steve has already said, was to basically deny the Germans the use of the all-important Normandy dock by ramming the dock gates with uh, the the ship HMS Campbelltown. Um, from there, really, it was a, there was a focus for the commandos to get ashore quickly and to uh, destroy and put out of action the various installations of, and facilities across the port. Um, in the immediate area of the Normandy dock. So you had uh, the pump house, uh, the winding gears uh, and the various other bits. Um, 
And so the objectives in more detail from here were to place extra explosives on the Cassian where the HMS Campbelltown had made impact, which is basically to ensure its complete destruction. And then, um, as I say, across the rest of the port, they'd destroy the various installations. Uh, a few bridges into like for access into Saint-Nazaire to the docks were to be blown, which is basically to stop the Germans from uh, bringing reinforcements in just to try and hold them back that much longer because the commandos were only to be ashore for no longer than one hour and 30 minutes. So this had to be done very quickly. And so as they sort of worked their way back out of the dock towards uh, their embarkation point, which was the, known as the Old Mole, they would destroy these various bridges. Uh, the other area uh, from this was uh, uh, the bridge and dock gates of the old entrance, as it was known, to the St. Nazaire Basin. Uh, the St. Nazaire Basin was a U-boat base, and so this was actually another sort of secondary objective, if you like, to uh, put that out of action. And by destroying these lock gates, it would render it uh, tidal, so it would limit the access to the U-boats. Um, now, this would be achieved through the assignment of assault, demolition and protection parties made up primarily of men from Number 2 Commando, who would form the assault and protection parties. And a further 92 commandos were drawn from numbers one, three, four, five, and nine commandos, and they would form the demolition parties. Uh, this force of 265 men was commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Charles Newman, who was a professional commando, if you'd like, who'd been in command of number two commando since its formation in 1941. Then you had Captains Pritchard and Montgomery of the Royal Engineers, they were assigned the task of coordinating the destruction of the various targets assigned to the demolition teams once the commandos landed. Uh, and as for the naval arm of the operation, uh, this would be led by Commander R.E.D. or Red Rider, as he was known. Uh, he was he had quite an interesting career building up to St. Nazaire. He'd actually uh, been in command of two ships which had basically sunk and he found himself sort of languishing in a desk job in Wiltshire when he was selected for the raid. Uh, but he would be made in command of HMS Campbelltown um, and 12 motor launches, four to motor torpedo launches, a motor gunboat, a motor torpedo boat and the escort consisting of two Hunt-class destroyers, Tyndale and Atherston. Um, there were two others, but the names of which I forget. Uh, but it was then also decided that somebody needed to command uh, the, the Campbelltown itself to make sure that it made that impact on the gates. So Lieutenant Commander Stephen Howden Beatty, or Sam Beatty, was placed in command of HMS Campbelltown itself. Uh, Lieutenant Nigel Tibbetts uh, was responsible alongside Captain Pritchard for the design and the installation of the four and a quarter tons of, it, of explosives in the bow of the ship itself. Uh, so, so there you are, guys. That's a, a, a rough rundown of the, uh, the men involved and the objectives. Yeah, so with that, that said, what do you think, Pete, about the strategic importance of St. Nazaire and its, uh, the, the garrison there and the defences? Well, the actual location of it is actually really well placed because um, obviously where the Germans had overrun that part of France, they've actually taken over loads of port installations. And obviously on that east coast, 
it's a prime place for them to put U-boat pens so they start trying to uh, affect the Atlantic convoys. Um, but also, St. Nazaire itself was actually used during the First World War as well by the Americans. So when the Americans turned up towards the end of the First World War, they were using that as a port. But one something they did find was that the port couldn't hold the ships that were bringing the troops in. So after that, they then started developing it, but then it all got scrapped. But then in the 1930s, they, um, what's the word? They they rebored the idea of making a larger dry, a larger dry dock. Um, and that's what they did. So they built these this large dry dock, um, but in sense of it, it isn't actually a dry. It's actually a, a lock because there's um, gates at either end of it. So um, yeah, so it's more of a lock than an actual dry dock. But that's a bit of random, bit of randomness there. <laughs> so the um, but with this new uh, dry dock that they made or lock, whatever you want to call it, depends which side of the fence you're sitting on. Um, you can actually have a large ship in there. And obviously when Bismarck was out on the hunt, that would have been a perfect location for it to go back to refit because if it had to come back round um, the Northern route of you know, past through, through uh, the top of Scotland and down that way, obviously they'd have run, it would have run into the Royal Navy again and it wouldn't have made it back to Germany or to uh, Norway to be refitted when it got damaged. Um, but obviously, it didn't turn out that way for the uh, for the Bismarck when it got to when it was about three hundred nautical miles from from the area to go into dock. Then you know it got sunk, and then when Turpitz turned up, the um, it, it was in that same situation where if it went straight down, it would run into the Royal Navy. The only way it could go to refit if it needed to would be to go around to this dry dock in St. Nazaire because it's the only dock that would be capable to hold in a ship of that size. Um, so, yeah, so that's, that's that's the big sort of strategic, uh, in a nutshell, that's the big strategic um, overview of why St. Nazaire was so important to Germans. It was mainly because of the... Well, before Bismarck got sunk uh, and also when Turpitz turned up, it was a really important dock because without that dock, they're not going to be able to refit those ships. Um, so defence-wise, um, at St. Nevers, it was actually quite quite well defended. So they had the uh, 20mm anti-aircraft guns lining the estuary, um, along with, um, there was rail guns nearby as well. Um, and also the garrison, there's about 5,000 men actually in the proximity of St. Nazaire as well. So it is actually quite well defended because obviously they know how important this place is. So they are going to fortify it as best they can. Um, So they were, you know, they were um, anticipating something could possibly happen. Obviously, I don't think they were quite expecting the commando raid, but they, 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 you know, they had that vision in their head that something like, not so much the command, but someone maybe on a larger scale w- would happen there at some point. So now that we've gone through the um, the objectives and the men involved in it and the strategic importance of the location, so Steve, let's start. Let's let's go into the nitty gritty of it then. Um, so let's uh, let's get the convoy underway. So the lads are on their way to Saint Nazaire. So yes, the the convoy numbering a, a total of eighteen. Uh, 18 boats or ships if you want to call them that 
So we've got the HMS Campbelltown is the big destroyer that's been requisitioned specifically for the for the raid. And you've got 17 uh, smaller crafts. So you've got a couple of destroyers, as, uh, as Jake's mentioned, but you've also got some motor gun boats, motor torpedo boats, and uh, also, also some uh, motor launchers as well. So these are the, all, the, all these craft, including the Campbelltown itself, uh, with the exclusion of the two destroyers, have had specific um, sort of uh, additions and, and removals from, from the deck. So the Campbelltown in specifically has actually had um, its sort of silhouette outline uh, purposefully changed to mimic that of a, of a German uh, battleship. It's also had its uh, its guns, its main uh, uh, four-inch guns removed. Uh, you've had uh, eight uh, Orlikon guns added to it, the 20-millimeter anti-aircraft guns uh, added to it. It's been, uh, Campbelltown's had a 10-day refit, and it's had extra armor added to the bridge as well, specifically for the raid. It's all, all of the craft that are on this flotilla, they've, they've all just been given just enough fuel to get in, do the job, and, and get back. And the same with water and, and supplies as well. And the, the reason why they've done that is they're traveling light and they're, and they're tra traveling fast. The convoy is, is, is actually left. It's left Falmouth. It left at 2, two o'clock on the 26th of March, 1942. So it, it sort of goes out into the Atlantic and it comes across a couple of obstacles. So the actual uh, flotilla itself, it, it actually comes across a German uh, submarine. This is on the very wee hours. On the on the twenty eighth of March, but uh, it manages to slip past them, past the uh, submarine, which is um, uh, th what they think is, is a very good thing at the time. But it later comes to so comes to surface, shall we say? And the submarine um, do it dives, and then it actually reports that the um, British ships are moving westward. But the Germans don't get wind of that um, information until a little bit later. So, so the the flotilla of ships enter the Loire estuary at about uh, half past midnight very early wee hours of the 28th and the defenders the germans must be must be wondering what's going on so jake give us a background as to what what the germans were seeing and what was happening on their side of things uh yeah steve so as pete said um the defense at saint nazaire was quite strong uh in the build-up to the raid on the the evening of the 27th um an raf uh, air uh, raid was staged uh, which was nothing sort, short of a shambles, to be honest, from the beginning. Uh, 60, 60 odd bombers were sent over Centre's Air uh, as a sort of a, a ruse, if you like, to make the German, to deter the Germans away from what was going to happen. And um, there was heavy cloud cover. So the RAF couldn't see where they were to bomb, and they were under orders not to drop any bombs unless they could see their targets. So there were lots of bombers basically running up and down for a bit. And the commander of the German garrison uh, realised that, you know what, this isn't right. You know, the RAF were very protective over their bombers. Even the Germans realised this and they were quickly in and out after a raid. So he made sure that the uh, German defences were placed on high alert for the rest of the evening, just in case anything happened, although they didn't obviously expect to see what happened. And, and so as the... The convoy entered the estuary. Um, a searchlight lit up straight onto the Campbelltown, and uh, as as you said, Steve, it was um, made to look like a German uh, torpedo launch. So uh, it had the German Krogsmarine fly flag flying, and they 
signaled to the ship to ask it basically what it was doing. And they uh, messaged back saying that they were going to come in for repairs. Uh, They were quite badly stricken. The rest of the force was sort of hidden in the shadows while this searchlight was finding out what was going on. And as always, uh, given the chain of command, these messages were passing backwards and forwards. And the Germans were slowly beginning to realise that, to be honest, this was a complete and utter ruse and something wasn't right. And then suddenly uh, a machine gun opens up onto uh, the Campbelltown, uh, which is where I think, Steve, you're going to talk about ramming the dock gates. Yeah, so the the actual Campbelltown rammed the dock gates only only three minutes later than was originally planned in, in the original plan. So the Campbelltown... Uh, goes in straight into the dock gate and uh, actually lurches on top of it 33 feet uh, forward on top. And the demolition teams and the commandos all start uh, jumping off the Campbelltown and all, ha- all hell starts breaking loose. Um, you know, just like, just like Churchill asked for, you know, the commandos were, were genuinely setting Europe ablaze at this time. Uh, all hell. I mean, you can't really bear to imagine that the, the amount of fire and com- confusion on the Germans part and you know these guys who've been training for this very moment, you know, months of work has gone into this, months of planning. And this this is their moment. This is what they've been waiting for. And just with a bit of a nod to the actual guys who are taking part, a couple of the sort of innovations of, of the British Army were coming in uh, at this point, coming into fruition. So you kind of really see the first proper uh, wide-scale use of, of rubber-soled shoes by the uh, troops on the ground uh, during Operation Chariot. So modern mindset, you know, rubber soles, it's you know, very, you know, we've all got rubber soles and all that sort of stuff. It makes sense. But the for anyone who's not sure, British troops uh, through you know, the normal infantry through the whole of the Second World War were using uh, hobnail shoes. So the reason why they, they brought these um, rubber shoes in is, one, um, above all else, you don't have the noise moving around, but two, if you're working and jumping off ships and things like that, you get much more grip with rubber. And the the other um, sort of interesting quirk to this, um, which you can't, it does make obviously total sense, but you think you know these are guys uh, they're in the army, you want to be camouflaged and so forth. But the guys actually uh, blankered their webbing uh, bright white, and uh, that was purely just for recognition purposes because they knew that it was going to be uh, up close uh, and personal uh, warfare. Uh, so obviously for that recognition, if you see someone with white web and you know it's a friendly and likewise, uh, pick it up on the note about the uh, about the, uh, the the footwear in particular. It's if you heard uh, hobnails on the floor uh, nearby, because you have to remember this is a very urban area. It's a dock, dockyard environment. Uh, you know, you're not going to be firing across at someone across a field per se. It's going to be up close, you know, 10 to 20 feet. If you hear hobnails moving around, you know that it's going to be uh, an enemy. So a couple of um, really uh, interesting uh, little quirks, but yeah, at this point, this this first sort of four or five minutes of of the Campbelltown ramming the gates, the Germans, as Jake's mentioned, you know, are, are, are clocking onto what's what's actually happening. They're under full attack, and the garrison's being mobilised, and the commandos are getting to work. Those demolition teams, are, you know, getting getting to work. They're going down uh, and looking at setting the charges. They know the area. Uh, like the back of the hand, they've be, they've rehearsed it. They know where they're going. They've even been trained, uh, you know, pretty much blindfolded doing this, which is um, really uh, really amazing. But I think Pete Pete's going to pick up and talk on um, the fantastic job that the explosives teams uh, were doing, in particular the explosives that were uh, planted on the Campbelltown. 
Yeah, so we're now at that stage where, yeah, where the Campbell Towns crashed through the uh, gate and um, and the commanders have pulled off and they've done ex- ex- exceptionally well. They've they've done exactly what they needed to do. So those blokes have now gone onto the dock side and they formed the perimeter. So they've now so they're now holding that section of the dock. Um, obviously, meanwhile on the Campbellton, on the Campbelltown. Uh, there's about 4.5 tonnes of it high explosive in the bow of the ship, and it's all been sealed in concrete as well to give it that extra punch. Um, so they've got it's, it's on a timer fuse as well, so it's been meticulously done. So when the operation comes to an end, so you said they're only meant to be there for about an hour or so, um, it's been set. So once that once the last of those commandos have been evacuated boom, the whole thing will go up. Um, so while that um, defence, so now, now that, now that defence is uh, there, the detonator has been set, that's now supposedly running. Um, and, uh, and the commanders are now getting to work. So they're now hitting the pumping station, the uh, cable sheds, as well and just trying to cause as much havoc as possible before their time is up and getting themselves off to their evacuation point on the old mole yeah that's really interesting pete actually and i think when you compare what was going on out in the water things were pretty much ferocious as, as they were on land uh once the Campbelltown had made its impact commander rider went ashore to basically make certain that the Campbelltown had not only fully rammed the dock gates, but also had been scuttled, making it immovable. And so most of the Campbelltown crew, of those that survived, were transferred to uh, motor gunboat 314, while motor torpedo boat 74 dropped some delayed action torpedoes into the base of the old entrance dock gates. And again, these would go off later on once the, uh, once the raid had actually taken place. Um, the biggest issue, though, really was the motor launches who were actually carrying probably around half of the, the commando force uh, due to their sort of wood construction. They fell prey to what can only be described as extremely uh, heavy German gunfire. All but a few of the mo- motor launches actually made it into the drop. Um and as the situation developed, it quickly became clear things were getting more and more out of control. Uh, basically, there'd be no way of escape for the commandos. And a lot of the motor launches um, very quickly were basically burning or running out of control in, in the water. Uh, so MTB 74, along with a few of the other craft, made their way out towards the rendezvous point with the destroyers at the the mouth of the Loire estuary. Uh, Along the way, they tried to stop and pick up survivors, uh, but they drew too much attention to themselves, and sadly only three of the 34 men aboard actually survived. Uh, There were some real acts of bravery, though, during this part of the raid. Sergeant Thomas Durrant, for example, aboard ML-306 would be awarded a posthumous VC for his actions. Um, As ML-306 entered the port, it came under heavy fire. Uh, Durrant, on the aft Lewis gun of the boat, engaged a number of searchlight and gun positions. 
And despite being wounded in the process, he remained at his post. And surprisingly, the, the boat made it out into open water, but was again attacked by a German torpedo boat named Jaguar. Uh, and despite Durant being wounded multiple times, he continued to fire at the torpedo boat until uh, ML-306 was boarded and silenced. Um, and sadly, later on, he died of his wounds. And the other case of bravery where another VC was awarded would be to Abel Seaman Wilfred Savage. And he was aboard MGB 314, which was the, the boat which brought in the headquarters team with Colonel Newman into the raid. And it would bring Commander Ryder and the Campbelltown crew back out. Um, after firing its torpedoes into some targets in the port, it made its way up the estuary to engage German gun emplacements uh, on the banks. And uh, with a two-pounder pom-pom gun with no shield, uh, Savage basically effectively silenced the shore defences for a very short time. Uh, unfortunately, Savage was killed once the MGB made it out into open water uh, after a German battery fired, of which the Salvo straddled the ship and killed him while still at his post on the gun. Uh, so we should probably go back to to see how things were going on in the dockyard. Yes, so the commandos have uh, they've jumped off Campbelltown and they're they're primarily organised into two assault teams with with five demolition teams, uh, mortar as well as um, some of the protection teams for the demolition teams. So three of the demolition teams were tasked with actually destroying the pump house machinery. Uh, this was just in case the actual dock gates, uh, the the Campbelltown failed to explode for any reason. Um, if they destroyed the, the pump house gates, it just meant that they wouldn't be able to uh, to open the gates with the machinery. So whilst whilst the demolition team was getting to work uh, in the pump house, uh, Captain Roy and his men, who were one of the assault teams, they actually knocked out two of the gun emplacements and then proceeded to secure a bridgehead. And this bridgehead uh, being secured would enable the uh, actual demolition teams to escape. And all of them succeeded uh, in their objectives. So... The commando groups on the MLs, however, they didn't reach their objectives. Most of the MLs were, were either sunk or put out of action on the actual approach to, to the dock. Motor Launch 457, however, was the only ML to land its commandos on the Old Mole. And ML 177 uh, was the only ML to actually reach the gates at the entrance to the Old Basin. And here, the commandos actually laid charges on, on two tugboats, uh, in the uh, in the entrance to the old basin, which is pretty awesome. So they they were definitely getting to work, and they were really uh, really busy at this time. Whilst we've said all hell was breaking loose, to be quite honest. Now, Lieutenant Colonel Newman, uh, two commando, he he was landed on the docks and he immediately took command and directed mortar fire onto enemy positions on top of the subpens. Uh, on top of the subpens, there were uh, two uh, machine guns which were uh, wreaking absolute havoc, uh, shooting down onto uh, the actual dock, and, and the commandos were suffering quite a large amount of, of casualties at that point. So uh, after uh, Newman had directed mortar fire onto his positions, he ordered uh, his men to fire on an armed trawler. So a German trawler, which is an armed trawler, it was, um, it was again wreaking havoc on the actual um, guys on, in the dockyard. Newman directed fire onto his trawler, and, uh, and pushed the, the trawler away, essentially it, it turned tail. 
Uh, Newman also organised a defensive perimeter of the dock. He quickly realised that his men were, were cut off from being extricated by sea. And he, he saw that there was kind of no realistic um, proposition of getting the guys out of uh, of the dock. So he um, he put a, a contingency plan into into place. He organised a defensive perimeter uh, whilst he figured out what to do. And he, he gathered around all the survivors and he gave them just three orders. The first of those was to do your absolute utmost to get back to England, above all else. Number two, not to surrender until all ammunition is exhausted. And finally, not to surrender at all, if we can help it. I think, Pete, this is probably an uh, ample uh, place for you to pick up and talk about the withdrawal of, uh, of troops and if any of the guys actually did make it back to, uh, to England. So the objectives that they set out to uh, do, they've done most of them. Uh, they've done a lot of damage. So, the, um, so those uh, demolition teams, etc., all come in back to Colonel Newman and uh, they said, right, the job's done. He's like, brilliant. Let's get out of here. They obviously head down towards the uh, the, mo- the old mole. And what they see in front of them is absolutely horrific because a lot of the MLs and the other vessels that were supposed to be picking them up are now burning out in the water. And uh, they then, from that point, knew that there was no way out for them. So the only option that they had was to either surrender or try and fight their way out and try and get to Spain. That was their only option. And uh, and that's what they tried to do. So they then sort of, they regrouped themselves and tried doing a big push. But obviously by this time, the Germans sort the Germans had started taking ground at this point as well. So um, locations that had already been held by the commandos, either those commandos had now been captured or they'd been killed. Um, and they're now trying to make that, that, sort of spearhead push just to try and get out. Um, so they last until the early hours of the morning. Uh, they couldn't get out the dock. Uh, the Germans had put up too much of a fierce resistance. Apart from five blokes, um, in all the confusion, there's there's five commandos who actually managed to break through and they actually made the journey across the Pyrenees into Spain. So they actually they actually escaped um, so I imagine that was uh, quite an interesting story in itself with those five guys making that making that journey. Um, but yeah, but by by the early hours of the morning, obviously ammunition had run out, so they, there's not a great deal they could do. Obviously casualties had mounted as well, and uh, I think if I remember correctly, they were they were held up in a cellar, and uh, and the Germans just walked in because they, they had nothing to throw at them really um and uh they walked up you know they came in colonel was over his pipe and uh and he said well the job's done you know we have we have come here to do what we needed to do that we can't get out so yeah so we have got to surrender and uh so those of them that weren't uh killed uh were now in uh german custody but a few of the commanders, obviously, like I said, you got the five guys who made their way across the Pyrenees. Um, there was a couple that did manage to get picked up in the uh, in a couple of the little boats. Um, not a great number of them, but there was a couple. Um, but on their way out on the estuary, they were still under fire because the because uh, you also got the searchlights now uh, honed in on them, so they're illuminated the whole way out. 
So they're they're literally just a magnet for fire. Um, so as soon as they got out of range of the uh, twenty mil uh, anti aircraft guns, um, the big guns started up on them as well. Until they then got out of range and then tried to make the journey, um, obviously north back to England. But also the fleet that was out in the bay, so to speak, um, about was it about sixty miles out? They also um, hit an opposition out there and they then also but they actually made their own journey they just they just left and went um because they thought things were getting a bit leery um so yeah so that was the sort of final hours of of of, of the main engagement so jake the uh so dawn's broken uh the commandos are now being rounded up so what happens next in the story yeah pete so uh basically by this stage the Campbelltown had been somewhat haphazardly cordoned off by the Germans and it had become a bit of a centre of attention for the town. There were loads of uh, German officers and civilians aboard the Campbelltown, basically in awe of what happened. And uh, completely amazed, to be honest, that <clears throat> this, this ship was here. And at this stage, uh, as a lot of the commanders of the commandos <laughs> had been captured. They were being interrogated by various different German officials and, and so forth. And at the moment, the, the Campbelltown exploded. Uh, Lieutenant Commander Beatty was actually being interviewed. And uh, at the very moment, the interrogating officer said to him how much of an absurd plan it was to try and ram the gates with a flimsy destroyer and he quickly uh, was proven wrong. And a lot of the commandos were still within the sort of the vicinity, if you like, and they all cheered and it was an amazing moment. But obviously, um, slightly awkwardly, the Germans and the civilians aboard were all killed. And I think around 300 uh, people were killed uh, as a result of that explosion. And the aftermath of which... Um, was left for years, you know, St. Nazaire remained out of action for the rest of the war. There was a huge amount of, of damage within the, 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 the immediate area of uh, where Campbelltown had actually blown up. So yeah, the greatest raid of all, as it was dubbed. And I have to admit that it, 45 minutes or so of this podcast, it, it will never do the story justice. It is. And it, it's almost, it is an unbelievable story. If you, if you, don't know anyone who was on it or you just can't picked a book up and just read it. You would think you'd think it was fiction because it's that out there. It's, it's such, it, it just seems like a, like a story. It doesn't seem real. It's almost beyond belief, but you know, sometimes these things, when you look at like say operation mincemeat and all that, all these kind of stories from the second world war, they're, they're that out there. They actually think, well, no one had ever tried that. And you can kind of put yourself into the, uh, into the jackboots of the German, shall I say to think, well, you know, God, that will never happen sort of thing. You can almost semi understand the, um, you know, the, these group of 40 officers and men on top of the Campbelltown having a, having a look around and seeing what it was all about, getting some photographs and all that jazz. And, you know, then lo and behold, you know, this, this time delay charge, goes up and, and, and kills these people. But the the, out, the outstanding legacy of Operation Chariot is, you know, well, testament's that we're, we're talking about it now on a podcast. You know, it, it's incredible. I can't find the superlatives to talk about the story itself. But as as you guys have alluded to, you know, there's over over 600 men took part on the British side. 169 were, were killed in action, uh, 215 prisoners and 228 
uh, men return to the UK. Now, when you look at those numbers, yes, that's a lot of people who you know have died, and it's a lot of people taken prisoner. But when you think of the lasting damage that they've done to deny the Tirpitz from being able to to enter St. Nazaire and the havoc that that you know battleship could have wreaked in the Atlantic. The trade-off is just well, it, you know, it, it completely pales in, into complexion into into what the the Turpits could well have been uh, capable of in the Atlantic. But talking of the Campbelltown, and you found this out very recently, but the the Royal Navy has actually commissioned a Type Thirty One. I think it's a I think it's a frigate destroyer, one of the two. But it's actually been uh, been named the the Campbelltown, which is a real fantastic thing. So that that's quite a, quite a bit of a legacy, shall we say. But we've also got two memorials we need to talk about. So the National Memorial Arboretum, they have uh, a memorial to the raid. I've actually been there and uh, and seen it. It's not far from where I live. It'd be rude not to have been. But also there's a memorial in Falmouth itself. Now, I've also been to that and it is a very small uh, memorial. It's just essentially just a lump of, lump of stone with a small plaque on. And to be honest, it just doesn't cut the mustard for me. You need we need to have a much bigger memorial. Of course, it's in Falmouth because that's where the where the flotilla uh, set off from and and came came back to as well. But when we look at the, the numbers taking part, so we had over six hundred blokes take part. Um, they actually gave out eighty nine decorations for for the action. Now, uh, of those eighty nine decorations, five of them were actually Victoria crosses, and uh, one of them was actually awarded to Lieutenant Colonel Newman. Um, Jake, this is probably an interesting part for you to pick up and tell us your story. Yeah, thanks, Steve. So Lieutenant Colonel Newman is actually my great-grandfather. And I suppose uh, the only way that I could really truly describe him is um, a professional and a real gentleman. he was a territorial soldier and he originally served with the 4th Battalion, the Essex Regiment, at the outbreak of war in 1939. Um, but he really wanted to, to, to get his hands dirty, he wanted to take the war, the fight to the Germans. And so he volunteered for service in what was actually uh, the forerunner to the commandos, known as an independent company. So he went and saw active service in Norway in 1940 with number three independent company. And from there, he built this sort of amazing uh, bond with his men and he was loved by them. They would have done anything for him. And he was known um, affectionately as Colonel Charles to his men. And uh, as a testament for their bond after the raid, they formed a society called the St. Nazaire Society, uh, which is still around today. But after the war hit, Charles sort of saw to it that the men who fell on hard times, um, he would get them jobs. He was an engineer for a building company known as WC French, and he would get them jobs. He'd get them work. He'd make sure that all the men were provided for. Um, and when, and the, the men that were lost on the raid were never forgotten. Um, I learned about Colonel Newman um, when I was about six years old in my grand's house there was this massive black and white picture of him sitting in a chair, holding his pipe. He was always seen with a pipe um, at the top of her staircase. And this picture sort of scared me at first, but then I asked who it was. And they all, they would tell me it's, it's Colonel Charles. And so I learned more and more. And then I realized the, 
the importance of the medal that he'd won, the Victoria Cross. And I thought, well, where is it? So uh, it turns out that it actually been sold years and years ago, but I actually managed to get in contact with Lord Ashcroft, who had bought it. And um, we went to London and I actually got to hold his Victoria Cross, which was the most amazing thing uh, of all to sort of hold that um, and also read his, his diary, which he carried with him. And from that, you can tell that he was just such a humble person and he wouldn't have done what he did for, for the medal that he wore. He did it, A, to take the, war, the fight to the Germans, but also he wore that medal um, as a sort of a homage to the men that were lost on that raid and their memory more than anything. So that's, that's my story on Colonel Newman. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating, Jake. And to have that family connection as well, um, it, bring, it, it, it brings that, you know, it brings this podcast to life, really, because you have that immediate connection to one of the guys that was actually there. And I think that brings us to the end of this uh, podcast. So, Jake, thank you so much for agreeing to come on with us today and, uh, and talk about uh, the raid and also about your great-grandfather as well. So until next time, stay safe. I'll see you soon.